Namaste and good evening to all of you. To let us continue tonight with some of the implications, teachings, conclusions of yoga, observations, which are included in some of the actions or teachings performed by Jesus as we are running through the contents of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in my previous satsang, I had commented, I'd finished with the episode, meaningful in so many ways, in which uh, Jesus proclaims his mission. He actually proclaims to be who he claims to be, uh, clearly, and uh, actually he encounters the first opposition. As we are going to see, along his life, there is always this polarization. When people are coming a little bit more softly, coming on a little bit more softly, uh, people say, yeah, I, uh, that guy, uh, I don't know, like Ramakrishna, you know, what do my parents or somebody's family know about Ramakrishna? And how much can Ramakrishna be a provocation? If you read very carefully his life, then you start getting maybe provoked. Uh, he was right. He was not right. He was a madman. He was a great guy. But in the case of Jesus, he is coming on very strong. Very strong. So there is almost... Only the people who didn't hear about him could be neutral about him. For all the rest, people would automatically polarize in white or black. Like they would say, yeah, he must be right. Or they would say, nah, come on, this is too much. This is just... So, Jesus is, in the previous scene, he is rejected in a violent way, it all the text tells us that people wanted to throw him off a cliff, which means to kill him, which was pretty extreme, like very violent Jewish community in those days, and uh, that Jesus somehow fades away. There was, it was not his time. He uses this crown chakra thing, and he just goes away, and thus... The episode ends. Again, I'm saying it's not an episode which tells us all the details of the story. Because Jesus preached his message for three years, three years and a half. And apparently this was one of the early episodes in his mission. And then maybe later, you know, that he was famed, that he walked on water, that he multiplied bread and whatever, fish and other things... In, um, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, in a small land like Israel, like the Palestine of those days, Judea, Samaria, and all the provinces which were comprising uh, Israel, there was not a state of Israel in those days, there were provinces, uh, of course, that he became famous. So it doesn't say automatically that everybody who was from the village of Nazareth said, no, no, that guy is the son of the carpenter. There's absolutely no... If they heard that the man multiplied bread and fish or whatever for 10,000 people, some people even from Nazareth would have said, whoa, you know, it's like this is something really extreme. Thus, 
um, it simply says that when pushed frontally like this, then people, of course, the 51% side was on the fact that people said, no, 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 this is too much, and so on. This is a very, very meaningful learning, because you can say, was Jesus unwise? Didn't he know what was going to happen if he took people against the grain? For those of you who don't understand in English, it's like when you take an animal against the direction of the fur. Like cats like to be petted along the fur. But if you start moving, browsing them against the fur, they get irritated, they get annoyed. So in the same way, you can annoy people going against the grain, against the direction of their fur. So... Jesus was this kind of person. He loved to go against the fur just to produce a reaction. You are with me or you are not with me. Other yoga teachers, masters, spiritual people, they have been more mild. They have said, you know, it's up to you ultimately. You know, I don't say anything. It's up to you to decide who I am what I do, and so on. And then it's up to you, you know, and then it's like, this doesn't make people need to choose frontally like this. But Jesus was this extreme character, also coming from this Jewish extreme mystical tradition, where things were with or against. You know, it's like, I don't want you to be lukewarm or neutral. But yeah, sure. I'm going to see the discourses of Swami Vivekananda, you know, because sometimes he has a crazy sense of humor, and I like to, you know. But is he really uh, a sage or something? I don't know. And I, you know, like, <coughs> you are never provoked to say left or right. Choose now and stay with that choice, you know. So... Uh, this is a very typical for Jesus. Others in history have been more extreme. It's a well-known thing that when you push things to the extreme like this, the reaction is also extreme. So Jesus from the beginning was prepared to take or ready to take extreme reactions from the world. Some people, if they want to be cynical about it, they said, yeah, he was asking for it. No, like when you step on people's toes like he did, it's obvious that sooner or later you are going to get it. So um, it's not necessarily that he was asking for it, but he felt that his mission was to be like this. Although he talked about love, although he talked about forgiveness, and he exerted them abundantly and all the time, Nevertheless, his position on the matters of the spirit was very straightforward, very uncompromising in this way. And then he goes to the next activity. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people. Capernaum, if you read the text of the Bible, is a place where many things have happened. Because again... The Jewish lands in those days, they are like right even today, the Jewish cities are like 40, 50, 60 kilometers from the Lev, from the Golan Heights and others, which are technically part of Lebanon and so on. So it's like even the, the, the Jewish land 
is relatively small. So as Jesus was going around for three years, it was a must that he went several times through the same places. It was not like India, a subcontinent, or roaming or pilgrimaging through Asia or some other big land. It was a relatively small place, and as such, uh, the name of Capernaum is famous because uh, many things have happened there, but again, recurrently, as Jesus came back after a year or so on. So he went in this famous little village of Capernaum, and he was teaching. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Like, you can feel clearly there is a sort of an intuition which makes people feel when somebody is talking by just quoting some scriptures, when, or when somebody is talking from an authenticity. And people could. That's why Jesus produces so much reaction in people, because people could feel that this person was authentic, like it was coming from his own essence, what he was teaching. And here comes one of the very first spectacular there was this thing with when they wanted to throw him off the cliff. Here comes another spectacular episode, which is a theme like this thing then. It happened so many times in so many other ways that uh, the Bible or the Gospel of Luke mentions it less and less acutely because it's like, it's as we said the first time. That's why this first time is a sort of emblematic. It's that Jesus is confronted with what he calls a possession, a demonized person, an evil spirit. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. This in itself is opening a huge discussion of classification because when we say demon in the regular language, people will understand something perfectly evil. But sometimes the demonic in metaphysics is described in a different way. And that's why this opens the door to something very vast and complicated, which I will uh, perhaps touch a little bit on uh, in tonight's speech but which is a much, much vaster field of study. The entities in the spiritual world, there are people who don't even want to think about that, but shamanically, animically, and in metaphysics, it's well known that it's not only human beings and God. The bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid. Between the bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid, there are countless levels, and those levels represent some subtle levels of the universe. That's why in many, 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 many traditions, there is mention of so many classes of spirits. These spirits, which exist in the subtle worlds, they are not, they can be Subhuman, human, or superhuman. For example, technically speaking, according to a simple shamanic teaching, you have a dog. That dog dies. Where does its spirit go? 
the spirit of the dog is inferior to the spirit of a human being on the scale of evolution. So it must go somewhere in a subhuman world. By the laws of resonance and of evolution, it's not in the same place with human beings. And therefore, as the Tibetan gurus pointed very clearly, there are places where you find animal spirits. There are animal realms, kingdoms, astral worlds. And therefore, let's say that your dog loved you so much, which in the case of the animal is more an attachment, but let's call it love, transfiguring it a little bit, and that the dog is attached to you. And the spirit of the dog, 50 days after the dog was dead, the spirit of the dog comes by. And if you are a bit sensitive, you say, oh, I'm thinking about Rex. I'm thinking the Rex must be around here somewhere. So you can say that in a very, very, very mild and inconsequential way, you are haunted by the spirit of your dog, which is a subhuman spirit. In a similar way, you can have contact with spirits which have been, let's say, part of your friends or family. You can say, I feel grandma. And grandma is a human being. We consider your grandma being an average human being. And then you are in touch with a human spirit. Sometimes, evolution doesn't end with the human beings. And there also exist spirits which are termed as devas, and there are so many classes of devas and spirits like Apsaras and Dakinis and Gandharvas and so many classes of spirits which exist in the subtle world and which are superhuman. Like their degree of evolution and their mental capability is higher than the human beings. On top of these, there may be entities, spirits, in the shamanic world, which are not even directly comparable, because if I say some, this is a dog which has never been a human being, this is grandmother which is an average human being, and this is a Gandharva which is superior to a human being. But what would you say, for example, about a nymph? The famous spirits of the forests and of the waters called by the ancient Greeks by the name nymphs or satires from where we have the satiricon the, the satire as a form of sense of humor satirical sense of humor that's coming in the Greek mythology from some entities which were sardonic and which were having a satirical sense of humor mocking human beings and being ready to do practical jokes and to be even a bit wicked sometimes. What is an entity which according to Maleus Maleficarum, the textbook of the Spanish Inquisition in the 12th century, what is a, an, a, an entity that sucks sexual energy from young men and young women? An incubus or a succubus? What are they? Subhuman? About human? Or superhuman? And the answer to such questions 
is not even easy to give. But roughly, metaphysics, and again, shamanism, animism, and the others, they tell us very clearly that the invisible world of the spirit, where we ourselves go after death, and then presumably after 300 years, we come back once more, and some of those spirits come and go and come and go, like the dog in my example, then, and again, the Gandharvas and the Dakinis can be, the Tibetan gurus had signs by which you can identify a woman if she is an incarnated goddess. And one of those signs, just in case you want to know one of them, is purple eyes, violet iris. If your eyes are violet, there is a chance that you are a superhuman goddess who came to incarnate in a human body on earth for an obscure purpose. I cannot develop this too much, but you are very lucky because the metaphysical uh, workshop is just around the corner, and there you can clarify these kinds of things big time, because that is precisely one of the workshops of Agama, where we teach clearly, according to great yogis and scriptures, we teach on the structure of the universe and the place of the human soul in the big picture and in the evolution. So I will not insist, but I'm just giving you some sketchy guidelines. Well, different spiritual environments have had different levels of permissivity about what you do with these spirits. For example, in some animic, African animistic or shamanistic, let's say South American shamanistic traditions, it's okay to have contact with different spirits of the forest. And it's, it's also okay to have contact with your ancestors, which means with your grandfather, like human spirits. Christianity, for example, considers that both these things are demonic and dark. Because you are choosing if I should pray to my ancestors or I should pray to the angels and Jesus. And then they say you are a total moron if you pray to your grandfather. Because your grandfather is a piece of garbage. It's just an atom, a grain of dust in this universe. And instead of you choosing something really high, you are praying to some spirits which relatively, not absolutely speaking, relatively are inferior. So why would you do that? That's why, for example, shamanism says you should pray to this spirit and this spirit, and Christianity or uh, Judaism or others, they say, no, those are demons, you should never talk to them. Those are inferior. Simply because the bar of their expectation is very different. Some African tribes, they don't have a Buddha in their village. And they say some spirits from beyond are okay. They are useful. You can see that in different syncretisms in religion. The Thai people pray to Buddha, but everybody has a little house in front of their house and land in which they pray to some spirits. 
So there is a bit of witchcraft and shamanism with the spirits. And if you ask the elderly people, why would you put a house in front of the... It's like, then you will not have snakes coming to your piece of land. You will not have this. You will not have that. Because they believe that all these jungle thing and so on is coordinated with some spirits. And then the spirits do some work. Even today when there was this big story with the uh, 13 people trapped in a cave in Thailand, one of the things which Thai people did is that they hired magicians, witch, witches, wizards, to perform offerings to the spirits of the mountain and to the spirits of that cave and river so that the children can be released without blood and without death. And although they did it, I can tell you that they didn't do it enough because one person still had to die. Not one of the children, but one of the divers, who miraculously was a professional diver, he simply died. That is taken by the spirits. Like today, probably even the Thais are becoming less religious and less shamanic. And they did it like, uh, yeah, okay, let's give some offerings to the... If they would have done it three times more, then the diver wouldn't have died. Because there is a price to pay. All the climbers who speak with the Sherpas in Nepal and they climb Mount Everest, they know before you climb Mount Everest or any other big mountain which has a kill zone over 6,500 meters or 400 meters, you have to make offerings to the spirits of the mountain. If not, you are the last idiot in the world and you risk to be killed. And anyway, a lot of people die on Mount Everest and on K2 and similar mountains. And many of them are simply not performing enough operations. Tibetan lamas, they have seen. Tibetan lamas who lived in the wilderness 5,000 meters high they were meditating. And in front of them there was a beautiful mountain. And then in meditation, they suddenly saw the spirits of that mountain. They saw it's like the mountain was hollow inside, which is not physically true. It's a mental perception. And inside the mountain there is like a palace. And there is the spirit of that mountain. It's very difficult to know if that spirit is subhuman, about human, or a little bit superhuman. <coughs> but it definitely it's very strong because an elephant can be subhuman and still way, way stronger than a human being or a whale, you know, if you want to compare strength. Even a dog is smaller than a human being, but when it comes to sniffing a trail, you cannot compare with a dog. The dog beats you a thousandfold. No? So it's like this spirit to be inferior to the human condition, it doesn't mean that they have no power. And Tibetan lamas, they have seen those spirits. And they said, there is the king of that mountain. And with a retinue, like there are tens and hundreds of other spirits, exactly at the court of a king. The retinue of the king. And therefore, those spirits, they have their own rules. And the shamans, the medicine man, the... Traditional doctors of Thailand, the Moborans and others, they know about these things and they dealt with it for thousands of years. Today, 
because of the secularization of the world, these things are considered to be most of the time superstitions. Like, ah, you cannot believe in that. Some people do, some people don't. Even if you look today on this island, there are Thai people who have houses and other properties, and they don't have one of those little houses in front of their house. Which means we are modern people, we don't believe in this shit in which grandma believed anymore. That belief came after thousands of years of living and experience. And now, because of a certain intellectual arrogance, atheism, skepticism, and lack of clairvoyance, some people are just flushing it down the toilet, although it has been created by hundreds and thousands of years of experience of a community living in a certain place, and they were not created uselessly, because nobody creates things uselessly which don't work. They must have worked in history so that people have said, you saw, it's worth it. We, we should do that. So, in this world of the spirit, where the positions are relative, it depends how exacting the tradition is. It seems that the Buddhist tradition, while they say pray to Buddha, pray to Dharma, Buddha, and Sangha, pray to the three jewels, that's the supreme thing. If somebody says, but I prayed to the spirits on my land, it's okay. Uh, what about if we, there are some Indian deities which don't really fit in the Buddhist pantheon, at least here in the Theravada Buddhism, but we still want to pray to them, like uh, the Indians are crazy with Ganesha, because apparently Ganesha can make you wealthy. Can we pray to Ganesha? Sure. That then the Thais have imported Ganesha. Ganesha is uh, accepted, is tolerated. It is a sort of a date. Of course, he is much smaller than Buddha, but he is good to have. And if you go in Bangkok, in front of the World Trade Plaza, you know, there is a Ganesha shrine, an elephant shrine, where people pray for money. People pray for wealth. And the list could continue. So in this way, we can say that Buddhism can take it with a sense of humor. You know, like you want to pray to some spirits. It's not Buddha. It's not the highest. But it's okay. In Christianity, for example, that sense of humor does not exist. If you pray to Ganesha, or if you pray to the spirit of the land, then you are doing witchcraft. And according to the fathers of the Spanish Inquisition, then you should be burned at stake. You're, it's so bad, because it gives a bad example to the whole community, to the whole village where you live, that you have to be just cut off. No, like it's unacceptable. It's only Jesus, Mary, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the angels and the archangels, nothing else is tolerated. Everything else is con considered demonic. So this epithet of demon, which is used here, is an epithet which simply says, not spiritual enough. But it can be not spiritual enough like the Icelanders, the Icelandic culture, is very backwards, or at least it was very backwards 20, 30 years ago, 
I had a pupil from Iceland when I was living in the West, and he told me about stories which were happening in Iceland, that the Icelandic government wanted to build a road. And then some Viking shaman, a woman, told them, on that place where you want to build, uh, because they publicized it, you know, and then they, she told them, on that place where you want to build a highway, there is a troll. A troll lives. A troll is not a physical thing. It's like a sort of a dragon, but in the spirit world. To make it clear in yoga, in the astral world. It's an astral spirit. Maybe even with etheric body powers and influences. And this woman told them, if you build a road there, the troll will be pissed off because from his standpoint you are trespassing. And there will be numerous car accidents there. He will kind of take revenge by trying to exert a sort of a nasty influence over anybody who passes through that place. And sometimes people will fall asleep while driving. Some people will make inexplicable mistakes while driving. And then there, in that area, there will be lots of blood shed because it's the troll. Guess what the Icelandic government did? They made a one-kilometer detour around that place, which is a lot of money, just not to disturb a troll. So, now we're talking about the 20th century, not about the 12th century, not about Maleus Maleficarum and Ignacio de Loyola or whoever, you know, all these founders of the Spanish Inquisition. So, um, a troll or whatever, a spirit of nature, is not necessarily evil. Like, uh, let's say, a boar. A boar in the forest. These wild pigs. But if you wound it, it will come on to you and try to kill you. So, there would be spirits who are simply dangerous and don't fuck with them. It says, you know, like they are not necessarily evil. So demonic means not good enough for the people worshipping Virgin Mary, who is very pure and very holy and very sattvic. And some people won't go lower than that. But in some traditions, some shamans and say, yeah, we do. We actually do. We give some milk to the troll, we give this, we give that, we make offerings, you know. And that is the essence of shamanism, medicine man, witchcraft, sorcery, magic, and all sorts of other such processes. All these forms, magic and sorcery, they are just a form of communication and deals with invisible spirits. And the question is, if in the culture where you live, the contact with that category of spirits is accepted or not. Christianity, for example, because we speak about Christ, because Jesus was so uncompromising, Christianity is also very uncompromising. Like almost nothing is good enough for the Christian mystics. Jesus, Mary... The saints, the angels, the archangels, and God in the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are okay. 
you want to pray like the Greeks were praying to the gods, which they called the gods, and which had nasty enemies. There were the gods and the titans, which in India are called devas and asuras. The devas are the white ones, the nice ones, and the asuras are the nasty ones. An example of one deva, the Greeks called him Zeus, the Romans called him Jupiter, which shows that it is related with the planet Jupiter. It's the spirit corresponding to the planet Jupiter in astrology. The Vikings called him Thor, and the Hindus called him Indra. Indra, Thor, Zeus, or Jupiter is one and the same person, and it's a deva. It's a spirit of light. If you have been curious enough to read, or if you will read stories about Zeus, slash Jupiter, slash, you're going to see that the guy is sometimes an idiot. And not very nice, always. Like he does things which are a little bit... Bleh. So you can say Zeus is definitely not like Jesus. Like Jesus is... Refinement of the refinement. Sattva of the sattva compared to Zeus. And still Zeus was considered by the old Greeks as good enough. Yeah, he is not a Buddha. He is not at the level of enlightenment. He is just a deva. But he's clean enough. He's like 98% positive. And there is a 2% where he still has some egoistic things. Like a deva is not God. A deva, in proper translation, a deity, like Zeus slash Jupiter, is imperfect, but still much stronger and higher than a human being. And people in the Greek and the Roman times, they were sacrificing cows, oxen, and bulls, and all sorts of things, to Zeus, to Jupiter. Every day, every day, every day, there was a lot, like Zeus was worshipped. Zeus was really worshipped. And when people were in trouble, they asked Zeus, 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 please help me, I'm in trouble. And sometimes, apparently, Zeus was answering and helping. Like, miracles were happening because people were not doing it absolutely for nothing. Absurdly. Aberrantly. Nobody in our village ever got anything from praying to Zeus, but we keep on doing it because we are a bunch of morons, you know? And we just do it mechanically like this. Obviously, there must have been something. So, Zeus was not good enough for the Christians. Worshipping planetary spirits was considered to be witchcraft and black magic in the medieval times. Like, it was not acceptable. Eventually, the church, but it was not really the church in its fullness, came with some angels and archangels corresponding to some of this planetary influence, like the archangel Michael is the archangel of the sun, and the archangel Gabriel is the archangel of the moon. 
and in this way you could replace it like you could they could sneak in something which was divine but not the old deities the old greek and roman deities were declared to be demons demons not meaning evil demons meaning not good enough not sattvic enough not spiritually not safe enough you should not become the slave of zeus because zeus sometimes is an asshole you should only be the slave of jesus because jesus is zero asshole and therefore jesus is safe with the archangel michael you are safe with zeus you are not because zeus does have an ego a big ego of a deity he is the king of olympus he is the king of the gods like indra and thor and and in all the traditions it's basically the same and thus you have to understand correctly this designation because metaphysics calls your attention on it for example in the tibetan bardo todol it is outlined clearly we have an art of dying coming up and even in the metaphysical workshop some of these things but it's not about death and dying so that's a different subject it is said very clearly that a human soul after death typically can go in six lokas in six astral places and one of them which is very rare for human beings is deva loka like you can go with zeus you can die and find yourself in the palace of zeus and suddenly you are surrounded by deities which means that you yourself have become a deity this sounds crazy there is a documentary on bbc which is called something like dragons of the kung fu or something it speaks about this martial artist from china and they find a crazy guy who somehow survived the cultural revolution and all that stuff in china and this guy is doing taoist practice he's it's a mixture of martial arts and qigong energy exercises and meditation and this old man he's like 70 years old he puts everybody to shame like this guy is doing his qigong practice and so on about 14 hours per day at the age of 70 like he's a machine he's a chinese machine he just is relentless all his day is training 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 and the bbc interviews him what's the purpose of your training why are you doing all this and his answer is like you know it makes your jaw drop if you don't understand the things which i told you before this old man he says i practice because i want to become a god a de- not the god a god a deity and that in the future people will pray to me and make offerings to me he just wants to become one of the devas and he's ready to work 14 hours per day so that after this life he will not be a human being anymore he would move to another category and he claims it totally serene you know it's like what's your purpose i want to become a deity so that people will worship me it's as simple as that so 
the Tibetan yogis say when you die, you can go to Devaloka, you can go in the world of the Titans, which are the nasty guys who are fighting against the Devas. Nasty, but not so nasty, sometimes useful. There is one of these characters which is famous through India, through human history, because the, of the Greek stories of Olympus. Do you remember from your childhood, if they told you in school, what is the legend, the Greek legend of how did human beings discover fire? Fire. In anthropology, fire is considered to be the thing which kicked off until they discovered fire, human beings were Neanderthals or whatever you want to call them. When they discovered fire, then they became human beings. Then the human civilization took off. In the Greek culture, fire was brought to the human humanity by a guy called Prometheus, in case you don't remember his name. Prometheus was not a god. He was a titan. The gods didn't want the human beings to stop being Neanderthals. They liked them Neanderthals. And the titan, with a bit of a nasty manipura, said, let's see what do you do if I give them the fire, and then they become smarter, stronger, they will challenge you, they will, and so on. So, even this, it was a struggle. And Prometheus was punished by the gods. Because he brought the fire, he was chained to a rock. And an eagle was coming and eating his liver every day. Until he was liberated by one of the great heroes. And the conclusion of this is, the fire is brought to humanity by a demonic entity, not by a deity, not by a god. And two, he that brings the fire must pay the karma for it. Because the humanity has changed and somebody had to carry that karma. That's exactly what Jesus did at a much higher level, on another octave. Prometheus brought fire and was crucified on a rock. And Jesus brought something else, brought spirit, and he was also crucified and he died agonizingly for it. It's the same principle. But you see, something good, we consider it good. Now when we look back in history, we consider it good, was done to us, not by a god, not by a deva, by an asura. In India, Prometheus would be in the class of asuras, of the titans, or otherwise said demonic entities. And then the Tibetans say, when you die, you can go in the human realm, like you go with your grandmother, and that's completely neutral. Like, what have you done? Nothing. It's like a jackpot machine. Try again. Next time, you try again. Maybe next time you'll get something. Right now, you, you clang, and what was it? Nothing. Zero. You were human, you died human. That's zilch. That's zero outcome. Or you can go up to the gods, or you can go to the titans, and this is usually the result of extreme temperaments. Like, for example, a man like Genghis Khan was one of the most terrible rulers that this planet has known. So you can ask yourself, where is Genghis Khan now? Is Genghis Khan 
a titan, has become a titan, an asura, or does he have so much negative karma that he is still in hell after 800 years, or what? And finally, there is the opportunity, uh, as the Tibetans say, there are six, but I'm quoting the four most significant, and the three most significant, Deva, Asura, or Hells. The Asuras are not in hell. Hell is hell, and the Asuras are having a big Manipura, and they do crazy stuff. And it's not the same thing. That's why the metaphysics, the modern metaphysics, groups the spirits in devas, spirits of light, demons, which is the name for asuras, for titans, and devils, or satanic spirits, which are from hell. There is a difference. But the Christians have put these two categories, and others have put these two categories together. And they have said they are both of them abhorrent to our religion. We don't want them. Neither of them is acceptable. And that's why when they say that there was a demon, we don't know exactly. Was it an evil one? Was it one which was sucking his sexual energy? Was it just some demon which made him confused? Or It's very difficult to say. Of course, the tree is known by its fruit, so... Sometimes some people are under the influence of spirits which are extremely unpleasant and destructive. And sometimes it's just like this. Like you trespass on a mountain and the spirit of the mountain, like these children in a cave in Thailand, the spirit of the mountain says, what do I get? You are very arrogant just coming and strolling like this. But it's my place. If it would be physical, and you would be 10,000 years ago, you would say, don't go on that mountain because there is a killer tiger on that mountain. Physically, you would see it, and you'd say, that's the, that's the domain of a tiger, which is killing people. Don't go there. But this is a tiger which doesn't have a physical body. This is a spirit tiger. And this tiger... It's not necessarily evil. You cannot say that tigers are evil. If you treat them well and if you leave them alone, they are just part of the ecological chain. If you destroy all the tigers in a food chain, then a disaster happens because the tigers have a function to play in the ecological chains in nature. And thus you cannot actually exter. It would be good to say so many people died because of tigers, panthers, pumas, cougars, lions, and so on. Why don't we kill them all? In five years we could have not one of these animals. We could wipe them out with machine guns, you know? Like we'd find them all and wipe them out. But then there would be an ecological disaster on all the continents of this earth because those wild animals, they have a function. So you cannot call them evil. But they are dangerous. You should tread carefully when you are in the presence of a tiger or of a puma or something like this. In the same way, when you go and climb Mount Everest, the spirit of Mount Everest is not evil. But it's like a tiger. It's a grumpy, tough mountain spirit. And if you trespass, 
The mountain says, did you pay my fee? Did you make a puja before climbing on Mount Everest? Did I get some offerings? And you would say, yes. And uh, the spirit of Mount Everest would say, pathetic, you tight-handed idiot. You gave me approximately one-tenth of what I require. It's not the usual tax. You are a stingy idiot and you gave me too little. So now you die. There is a sudden storm on Mount Everest and then you die. On Mount Everest there are so many dead people and nobody can even bury them. They just roll them on the side of the road and they are frozen. There are corpses on Mount Everest which are 40 years old. Nobody can go and pick them up because it's in the kill zone and it's like it's completely impossible. It would take horrendous efforts. And so you cannot say that Mount Everest is an evil spirit. But it is from the class of titans, demons. It's a tiger. And you don't fuck with the tigers. You have to tread very carefully with the tigers. So in this way there are some of these spirits which can be very unpleasant. And they can kill But they can be even useful. Going to an extreme and taking this vision, the great initiate called Gurdjieff, he said demons are in your motorbikes, computers they didn't have in those days, and cars. That's why people die in motorbike accidents and car accidents. Because it's a blood price to be paid to those spirits. A smart shamanic society would make offerings to the spirits of the cars and motorbikes in advance. Like, you want blood. Here is a chicken. Offer the blood. This is for you, so don't kill my brother. Leave my brother alone. Take the chicken. We are friends. Gurdjieff, in all seriousness, he says that the spirits of the automobiles are some demonic entities like Mount Everest, but of a different kind, of course, another category, which cooperate with us. Like, what would you do without motorbikes in this island? What would you do without cars? What would you do without the airplanes which bring you here? What would you, you know? We'd be paralyzed. But there is a blood price to pay. Because those spirits, they say, we give you our service. People say, come on, cars serve us. Either they want or not. That's because of the fallacy of believing that the cars have no soul. But for example, the first engineers who created aircraft, there is a Romanian engineer who created one of the first aircrafts in the world in 1905, and he has a quote which is famous. He says, in an airplane, if you don't put soul, heart, it won't fly. Like if you design an airplane and you do it without getting gray hair, you know, like without sweating and putting all your enthusiasm into it, you are going to get a design which will not fly. It flies because you pour your blood into it. You invest your jivatma into it. You invest the energy of your soul. So even the airplane is a demon. Wants something from you. Sometimes your computer is nagging you for half an hour. And then it starts working again. It just wants attention. You are not giving it enough attention. 
It wants something from you. And it, it spends your energy. It burns a part of your energy. So, this interaction with spirit is a big, big, big thing. And I could continue a lot. Again, very puritanic religions, they have relegated everything which is not in the superclass as demons. Shamans and medicine men and uh, tantric magicians of India and Tibet and others and others, they have been a little bit more elastic. They have said, no, 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 no. This one is just a fairy. And you can deal with the fairies. You can offer something to the fairies. And then the fairies are your friends. Most famous experiment in the Western culture some 30, 40 years ago is, of course, the Findhorn experiment, where this clairvoyant woman with these two people, they bought this place in Scotland, Wales, wherever it was, Findhorn, where everybody told them it's not fit for agriculture because it's sandy. And they grew up some of the biggest organic and ecological crops that the world has ever seen. Like they obtained tomatoes as big as a melon, without pesticides, without fertilizers, just by praying to the fairies. No. And they, said, they simply said, we prayed for a tree, we planted a tree, and then the clairvoyant woman prayed to the fairies. And they said, we went in the morning, and all the sand was dry, but around the tree, one meter around the tree, the, land, the sand was wet. As if somebody had watered it the whole night. So the fairies and other such spirits, they can produce some paranormal effects. If contacted in the shamanic, witchcraft, magical way, this is exactly the essence of it. Well, in the medieval times, you'd be punishable by death for trying that. Because the Christian priests thought that you defile your soul if you try to work with fairies and so on. Because it's not Jesus. You are not giving enough importance to Jesus and to Mary and to God. And you are just dilly-dallying and dabbling in some dubious halfway thing with fairies. And they were strict on this. So, of course, the text here bears this emblem. That there are people possessed by spirits. A lot. This possession by spirits is of many kinds. Even physical. Even the traditional medicine of Asia considers that viruses, virus, viral infections, like the swine flu and this kind, they are produced by demons. Tibetan lamas, when there were epidemics of cholera and smallpox in Tibet, these were the two most frequent epidemics in Tibet, they were performing exorcism. Like if you have smallpox, smallpox is a demon that possesses you. And actually 10% of the people with smallpox even die. And it comes periodically. That's why they are, try they are making fun in Asia of all this obsession with stopping the flu. That every year the flu is coming. That flu is coming because some demons have the right to come every spring or every autumn. And just by trying to isolate everybody, you cannot. Every two, three years, there is a pandemic. There is the bird flu, 
the aviary flu, the swine flu, the Spanish flu, the this and that, even to the human beings. And therefore, even a fever and an infection is sometimes considered to be the interference of a demon. For example, later, when Jesus comes, he says that he comes to Simon, that's Peter's mother-in-law, the future apostle Peter, and she was suffering from high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. He bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Like Jesus spoke to the fever, and he says, Shoo! Shoo! And the fever stopped. No antibiotic. Today you would use an antibiotic. Jesus just chased it away, said, bugger off. And she became healthy because Jesus thought that fever is a demon. So the, inf the demonic influence can be physical, different diseases, bacterial, microbial, viral, and so on. I was amazed when I heard this. I said, come on, this is a bit like, is this a... You know, I, I come to these things with the mind of the physicist, of the engineer, of the, you know. And I, was th I would think like, come on. And then I studied how do viruses work. Viruses are a very strange thing. Because viruses come under the form of an amino acid spiral. RNA, not DNA, but RNA. And this viral thing... It goes into, it's not a cell, it's nothing. And this virus thing goes in one of your cells, replaces your DNA and tells it, get out, and installs itself in the middle of your cell, and then your cell becomes possessed by the virus, and it starts working for the virus. So actually when you have a virus, a hundred million cells in your body are not belonging to you anymore. You are impregnated by another entity, which is like in your aura. It's in you. It's not only in your aura. It's in your body, physically. It's like hundreds of millions of viruses come. They don't occupy every single cell. If the virus goes too strong, then you die. And it happens that people die because of very nasty viruses. But usually, the smart viruses are just like vampires. They suck your vitality, they possess you for six months, and then they say, see you in three years, I'll come back. You know? Exactly like you milk a cow. They come, they suck your energy, you are possessed by the virus for three weeks, then the virus says, bye-bye, see you again, we'll be back. So it's a possession, even physically. Different other physical things happen because of other conditions in the body. Like for example, people in the old days considered that the influence of alcohol and alkaloids like nicotine and tobacco and others, most of the so-called psychoactive plants, Coffeine in coffee, mescaline in peyote cactus, and all the others, they are producing a state of possession. For example, when the shamans of the Amazon take 
the legendary ayahuasca, the expression that it kicked in, they say, eu soy pegado, which means I am possessed, I am under possession. The spirit has come into me. And now I see colors or whatever. I feel that I can fly. So actually, most of the shamanic things, they are forms of possession. And who knows where it's going to go. Don Juan, in the teachings of Castaneda, tells him, if Mescalito is happy with you, you are going to have a great trip. And if Mescalito, the supposed spirit of the peyote cactus, if Mescalito is pissed off at you, you are going to have a horrible trip and you are going to have a nightmarish, hellish experience. So what I'm trying to say here is that chemicals also can produce states of trance. For example, in the old days, it was considered clearly that people that are drunk are possessed by spirits. And that's why sometimes they can be clairvoyant when they are drunk. They can be brilliant and full of genius. They can sometimes tell the truth unexpectedly. There is even a Latin proverb which says, In vino veritas, in wine there is truth. Like you drink the wine and then you suddenly speak the truth as it is. So, therefore... There is, the, the, the possession is physical, also possible, even on the physical body. This physical possession has been exaggerated grotesquely by Hollywood movies like Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist and other such things. And it has created a grotesque and unacceptable image through horror movies and such a spooky uh, spirit movies, denaturating, like completely adulterating the nature of it. Whenever people think about possession, they think about that it should be like in Poltergeist or something like this. It isn't. It's much, much different. And again, rather think about a fever, a virus, drunkenness, a state of trance, and other similar such I would need to take, a, although I plan to finish in half an hour, I would need to take a short break with you right now because I simply need to visit. I was speaking about physical influence, like the most gross form of a spiritual influence. And again, when you say possession, it sounds really grotesque when you compare it with a Steven Spielberg movie. But actually, in real life, it's sometimes a very mild phenomenon. For example, nowadays, scientists will speak to you about the so-called microbiome, which simply says that a lot of our digestive system and more in the body is made of bacteria. We are inhabited by an incredibly large number of bacteria which exist everywhere, even in our brain. And without them, we wouldn't be able to function. 
Actually, it is shown that our stool, just to be attuned, that our stool is more than 90% made of bacteria. It's not what you ate. The analysis of it shows that it's made of bacteria. This microbiome, which lives in us, it shares with us the same body. And guess what? It controls and it tries to control our body and brain. For example, one of the bacteria which automatically lives in everybody's body is candida, the famous candida. Well, candida sometimes becomes tyrannic. It starts a dictatorship and it takes over. And then, what does candida do? It wants sugar. It lives on sugar. And then what does it do? It tickles some endings in your bowels and sends electric signals to some centers in the brain. And it produces some chemicals as well which are reacting on a chain and produce neurotransmitters. Both of these go to your brain and they tell to you one thing, I want chocolate. I want to eat something sweet. You don't. Your candida wants, your candida wants you to eat chocolate. So your candida is hypnotizing you like to eat chocolate. It's coercing you to eat sugar. Any one of you is trying to partake a tapas that one month or one year you don't touch sugar under any form, then you are going to see hell breaking loose. Because candida will strike back. And then you are going to see that this entity, this spirit called candida, is friendly until it's not friendly. When you piss it off, it becomes a horrible thing. And it can give you headache, nausea, it can make you angry out of the blue, it can make you confused, it can make you like it... It's things which you wouldn't believe that they can come from outside, but they do. Literally speaking, they come from inside. But they don't come from your conscience and from your decision. So even physically, there is a lot of influence. But when you go to the etheric body, the influence is much more. Like where does your energy go? Who uses your energy? This is the famous story with young people and not only young people masturbating non-stop and losing their ojas, losing their sexual energy. Where does it go? The most typical case analyzed by parapsychologists, now I'm not talking from religion, is the famous case which is actually called Poltergeist but it's not the movie by Steven Spielberg. It's the scientific phenomenon called Poltergeist. Poltergeist means in German an angry spirit. And angry spirits are, for example, producing rapping sounds. That's the typical manifestation. And these rapping sounds are on the walls or in the furniture. And they happen especially to teenage girls when they go to menstruation. Teenage girls going to menstruation... They produce rapping sounds, cracking of the furniture, books falling off the shelves in the library, 
paintings falling off the walls, and all sorts of mechanical brief effects, which are coming from their energy. They are coming because of their Muladhara and Svadhisthana, stolen by some spirits, and used chaotically in like an angry manner. So, how much of our energy is ours and controlled? Then the spiritual influences can exert on the astral body. Like, take a decision, take a decision if you dare, take a decision to be happy, spiritual, loving, joyful, and compassionate for one month. Just simply say, for the heck of it, I just want it because Swamiji has pushed my buttons tonight, and I just want to do that. And of course you know that you will not succeed. That something or somebody or something is playing with your emotions like a roller coaster. Many of those are not yours. They can come from your angry candida, or they can come from a hundred other sources. I know that there is a cosmic... I, let's say I'm a religious person, Christian even. And I'm, I know that there is a God who loves me, because Jesus told us, and showed us. And now, today, I feel like shit. I feel like God has left me. I think like there is no God. Logically, I know that this emotion is shit. And it's not true. But this doesn't prevent me from feeling it very strong. So this emotion is like produced on me. I don't know what produces it. Here, when we go to the level of psychology, you find this huge level of confusion. Because there are Buddhist texts that have created a sort of an analogy between microcosm and macrocosm. What is inside corresponds to something which is outside. And therefore, if there is a spirit of fire, it corresponds to your internal fire. And then I can say that any deity <laughs> or spirit... It's a projection of something which is in me. That's the place where psychology meets with shamanism. The psychologist says, it's in you, this fire. And the shaman says, you are in resonance, in touch with the spirit of fire. It's the same thing, but it's only seen from two ends of the rope. It doesn't mean that only the psychologist is right and that there are no spirits. And it doesn't mean that there are only spirits and there is not a correspondence in the human psychology. Like the human person who experiences that anger ascribes to it a reason. And then you go to a shrink and the shrink says you are angry because your parents didn't love you enough. But guess what? There are many people whose parents didn't love them enough because the world is full of parents that have no love because their heart chakra is shit. And not all of them become angry because they don't have a Manipura. 
and therefore it depends if the child who is loved or not loved has a manipura from a previous life, has the astrological sign and the karma to be a fiery person. So somebody who was not loved becomes angry, and another person who was not loved becomes depressive and lazy. Therefore, it's not only psychology. It's a connection that is a, in a very vast connection between what we experience as an interface and what is our karma, astrological sign, and the external influences from the universe. So actually, creatively, we know that both the psychologist and the shaman, they are right, only that they see two different ends of the same stick. They talk about the same stick, but they look at it from different ends. And therefore, many psychological things, they are also forms of possession. Like, I want to love God. Let's say I'm born like Amish in America, or like some of these crazy Christian sects, like Jehovah's Witnesses or something, and I've been, or like I'm educated, like a Mormon or something, and I'm pushed there and I'm said, you should love God, and God loves you, and you should, and I'm on, I'm brainwashed, I'm motivated, I'm programmed, and one day I feel like shit. <coughs> there is no God. There is no, nobody loves me, God has forgotten me, you know. It's like, I don't go as far as saying as that there is no God. But I'm simply saying he doesn't love me, or something. Is this coming from angels? Do you think any angel can inject that idea in my mind? Obviously not. So obviously when a person has such emotions, and I can give other emotions, no? There are people who have the emotion to kill, to hate, to destroy, to do. Those emotions are put in the minds of people by some demonic entities. No? What made people hate Jesus? What made people betray Jesus? Demons, it's said very clearly. When Judas discovered what he had done... He hanged himself. So Judas was for 12 hours under the influence of some demons who told him that he was doing right. These influences are not black and white. They are of a certain degree and some, and they are not total. They are not stupid like in the Hollywood movies. They are not uh, taking over. And it's not possible that you just walk on the street and you are possessed by a demon. They are preconditions, which mean, what is your karma? How are your chakras from previous lives? How many impurities you have? How much resonance with this dark spirit do you have? And thus some people are possessable and possessed more, and some people less. Astrologers have sometimes the opinion that some planetary influences and some zodiac influences are favorable to more demonic possession than the average or less. And thus, again, I'm not going to go there. Each one of these things could take a lecture to debate and to tell you the, all the pros and cons of it. I'm just opening doors. And then, 
There is the demonic influence at the level of the mental body. Your mind can be made to believe something. You believe something. Then three years later you don't. Even three hours later you don't. But your mind can be twisted. So the resonance can be physical on the physical body. Eterical on the etheric body. And then you feel that your energy is one way or another. Astral. And then your emotions are not really yours. But very few people can realize, hey, this is not my emotion. I'm usually not like this. And the influence can be even mental when for a certain amount of time your mind is disturbed and thinks wrong things. And then your mind is not yours anymore. And this is very, very difficult to see. And sometimes people do things. Like people... Can be. Let's say, uh, in India, the gurus are having some qualms about women being in menstruation. But guess what? Here is a simple statistic from American and European pol police. Out of a hundred women that committed suicide, 95 were menstruating. Out of a hundred women that have been caught shoplifting... 90-something were in their menstruation. Which obviously says that a woman, when she is menstruating, she is liable to be possessed, to be having really bad ideas. And that's why the Brahmins of India, being very puritanic, they've said, no, 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 no. Better when you are menstruating, stay away. Three days, four days, five days every month, it's a small price to pay, so that you don't do this or that. They don't even f eat food cooked by their own wife if she is menstruating. Because she puts that prana in the food and then it comes to you who eat it. Again, in Tantra we don't have these qualms. Because Tantrics deal with these low energies by sublimation and it's another world. But in many traditions... That's the case. Menstruating women are advised not to go in church in Christianity, not to enter in the mosque in Islam, and many other injunctions like this exist. So that simply says that this possibility to be under influence differs from case to case, and it's there. When there are gurus which have warned their disciples not to do certain things on full moon, Statistics in the police shows that on full moon, most of the shitty things in the society happen. Crazy people go crazy and they go to the mental hospital. They go in crisis. Arsonists do arson. Car accidents go through the roof. Like people drive chaotically and erratically. And a few others. I don't. Domestic violence, street violence, all of it goes through the roof. And then, of course, some idiots, they turned it into a party. Because people who go to the full moon party will drink more, will take more drugs, will do more stupid things. Because the full moon is an environment which opens your Svadhisthana chakra, and it will allow some inferior influences on Svadhisthana chakra to sneak in your system. In this way... Spiritual people are very aware 
and careful about these influences, although they might not always take, no, like many of my early gurus were of the opinion that coffee also has a bit of a demonic influence on human beings. I have in my life encountered spiritual people and even people in yoga who occasionally were drinking uh, coffee or a Coca-Cola. No? Those people were like playing with the demons a little bit. No? Like they were accepting, like if you tell them, do you know that this could be a, yeah, but it's acceptable. You know, it's like it's okay. It's not too bad. And only time will tell if it was too bad or not, if you should have been 100% or not. And in this way you have to understand these many stories which come about Jesus, that Jesus cast away demons and there were people who were possessed by demons. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. Again, we don't know, but there are stories about this, for example, which say that this boy or another one, the father of that boy complained that he is raving, he's a raving lunatic, and sometimes he throws himself in fire. Like he wants to burn alive. Like he's suicidal. That's a real tough one. No, like that's a real nasty possession, which goes, it's like a virus that kills you. Normally the virus doesn't have the intention to kill you because it likes to keep you alive and profit from you as long time as possible. If a virus kills you, it's a very dumb virus because it, it kills you and then what will it do? It will die together with you. And therefore the smart viruses are the ones which keep you under possession for a long, long time. In the same way a virus that possesses a young boy and makes him want to throw himself from a building and die, is a dumb virus. Is a, is a demon that is really just like a wild, unleashed, stupid animal that blindly acts, and there is no intelligence or subtleness in that activity. But tobacco, oh, look at what the tobacco industry does. And even when we put bad teeth and terrible images on the tobacco packages, People still buy them and smoke and smoke and smoke. What a smart demon is the demon of the nicotine and of the tobacco. It is a demon. When the Spanish discovered it in the 16th century in South America, the tobacco was called the devil's grass because they saw the effects which it had on the shamans from South America and people who took large amounts of nicotine through tobacco they were foaming at their mouth and rolling on the floor and they were behaving exactly like demonized people behave during an exorcism. And then the priests, the Catholic priests, they said this grass is making you becoming under the influence of demons. So they called it the devil's grass. Today nobody says that, right? Teenagers smoke it, everybody smokes it. And in the 1950s and 60s it was even cool. It was a cool thing to do. No? Today, almost nobody can stop the smoking of marijuana. It becomes actually legalized in more and more countries. And it's just demonic entities. 
That's why in yoga we are not for smoking marijuana, not for smoking tobacco, if possible not for drinking coffee, not for drinking too much alcohol, a little bit for your heart, but not five glasses, so you start getting tipsy and singing in foreign languages or something, you know? So there is a dose, there is a dose which shows the margin of that. And thus, there are different forms of possession. And there was a boy possessed by an evil spirit. Let's just finish this one. I still have five minutes or ten minutes. Just I will stop in the middle of it. Because today I wanted to make the big introduction about what it means and how present. Basically everybody in this room has been at one time or another under the possession of some demonic entities. It's part of our daily life. So the question is only how much and for how long. And are you going like, is Buddha under the influence of any demon? Because try to think, even Buddha has candida in his body. Only probably the candida of Buddha is under control, is within some reasonable limits, because Buddha has a very Spartan lifestyle, and definitely he is not eating sugar and chocolate. And his candida is suppressed. So in this way, everybody here in this room, don't get afraid of that. Rather, embrace it and see what you can do about it. Everybody is confronted with a certain degree of spiritual influence. You have been in a place in the forest where there was a troll. And then you got afraid and you ran away. You have been under the influence of a spirit. We, you masturbated like crazy for three years. You have been under the influence of some spirits. No, it's, those spirits exist everywhere. We can't avoid them. That's why it's important to better understand. But this is the human condition. The human condition is a condition of ignorance. And that's why what I am doing now to you and through this video recording to the whole world is a formidable revelation. I'm pulling the curtain from something which for most people is hidden. And I'm doing it today with a very good purpose. There is a reason which, for which I'm doing this today, because we are at a state of war. And then if we are at a state of war, I can very well strike back. And thus, in this situation, uh, everybody undergoes different levels of demonic interaction. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And if this demonic interaction goes too far, because sometimes some people under a demonic influence... No, we remember there was a case in the school some four years ago. A guy who was a professional, like a doctor or a psychologist or something, he was talking to somebody. He knew a professional secret, like when you go to a lawyer, like when you go to a priest and do confession, like when you go to a psychologist and tell him about your health condition. And then he goes to a whole bunch of other people and he blurts it out. And he usually never did that. He was a very solid professional, this man. And somebody asked me, how did this guy act like this? And I told everybody, obviously this man has been under a demonic influence. Like a demon took his mind for five minutes 
and he lost his self-control. He lost his composure, and then he did something. And then he blurted. He spoke without thinking. Then he regretted. But it was too late, because the harm was done. And thus, these influences are everywhere. But if a demon takes your mind and you betray Jesus, then that becomes an irreparable damage. Judas could not take it back afterwards. And thus, um, these influences, the question is that everybody meditates, how far do I go in this influence and how much I'm going to tolerate? Like, where is my limit? Because then you shrug your shoulders and say it was a demonic influence. Yeah, but Judas hanged himself because of that. And Jesus, when he announced that somebody was going to betray him, Jesus said it would have been better for that man if he never was born. Like Jesus said, the fact that he is possessed by demons, that's his karma, that's his way, and he could theoretically resist, but he didn't make any effort to resist, and he just went and did the deed. And thus, uh, again, we all are confronted with telepathic influences. We are influenced by the collective subconscious mind. We are influenced by family. And we are influenced by different spirits. And some people find this information very scary, very spooky. It's not. It actually corresponds to the reality. And one has to learn to deal with this reality in a yogic way. That's why the yogis and many other spiritualists, they are very pure about some things. Precisely because they know, if I become too yin, if I become too much like this, if I become too much like that, then I'm wide open, and some of these states of possession might cross the red line, and then I might regret it. And as such, this is important information. And this boy, when, he, when Jesus appeared in the synagogue, he cried out at the top of his voice. That's also a demonic thing, you know. Screaming, shouting, you know. Going really like this. He cried, Ah, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is very meaningful. Because in vino veritas, that boy was not drunk, but he was like drunk. He was in a trance, which, of which he was not aware, because of a possession. And in that trance, he spoke the truth. The other people around didn't know who Jesus was. But this boy possessed by a demon, because the demon was speaking through his mouth, he knew. And he recognized, and he says, Ha! Ah, why did you come here? Jesus, he was afraid. He was provoked. He said, you came here to destroy her, because he knew that Jesus would not tolerate that presence that Jesus was going to act. So it was a sort of an angry reaction, like a wounded animal, like an animal that strikes back. And thus, here... We are in the middle of this crazy episode which is repeated so many times where Jesus acts in this shamanic way. It's a divine shamanic way and in which Jesus, as he is intolerant to so many impurities and things, he is, he is intolerant to this. 
And it so happened that here and there, there was a lot of possession. For example, just to give you a thought to think, today we use antibiotica to stop viruses and epidemics. And we use vaccines to stop chickenpox or whatever, you know, other different things, different diseases. Guess what? What is happening because of this vaccination and antibiotica? The number of autistic children has grown in the United States to one in four. One in four children is autistic. And the numbers, I promise you, the numbers will increase Simply because if you suppress the demons from acting as chicken pox, they will take over the mind of your child in another way. That's clearly announced in holistic medicine, in homeopathy, and other form of natural healing. That's why it's considered very unwise <coughs> to suppress. It's much better when it goes out on your skin that when it goes inside your soul. You have chicken pox for two weeks and fever and then you are free for the rest of your life. Somebody gives you a vaccine against it and then you become autistic. For example, there are communities in the same United States which don't use vaccines like the Amish, some fundamentalistic fanatic Christians, some very backward Christian communities which hardly use electricity and stuff like this. And the Amish hate vaccination. And the Amish people don't vaccine their kids in their villages. Their amount of autism is about a hundred times less than in the rest of America. Nobody wants to see it. And nobody wants, because the pharmaceutical industry makes billions, the medical profession believes in vaccination, and it's right in their face. Like, how do you explain it? No, we don't even talk about it. We don't want to explain it. There's nothing to explain. You are an idiot. Shut up. We know better. No, there is simply no argument. But the autistic children are also possessed. They should have been possessed with chickenpox. And those childish diseases, mumps and measles and all that, they are not. And then they become autistic, they are possessed somewhere else. Because the karma is still there to have an influence. That's why I'm telling you, up till a point, we the human beings, we live in this jungle called the earth. And in this jungle called the earth, there are lots of influences and things. But... The question is that an informed person knows how to deal with it. Like, do you want your child to have mumps and measles? Or do you want your child to become autistic for the rest of their life? Then if somebody would put the choice like this, then people would think twice, suddenly. But because the official medical systems don't present this side of it, then automatically we don't know what to do. So... There are people who are in under influence, people who are autistic, possessed, drugged, drunk, and others. And Jesus was encountering a fair share of these people, even in his time. And he had a way of dealing with it, like you are going to see 
Like he was very cutting with this. We all are like I as a yoga teacher, I see it many times. It exists in my school and in many other parts. And sometimes when people do yoga, then after three months they start drinking like crazy, which they did ten years ago. Or they start doing other things because the demons strike back. It's like slaves which are running from a plantation. And the plantation owner wants the slaves back because he lives on the back of those slaves. So the demons are doing many, many weird things on people, and people should slowly, this is a bit of a more hidden part of the spiritual life, and people, but when I describe about Jesus, who was doing this all day long, then it's right there in your face. You cannot just dismiss it and say, oh, that's odd. It's not odd. For Jesus, this was 100% on, and this is what Jesus was doing. And not everybody has the power to deal with it all the time. No? Like, maybe you do some Oshava diet and you become more yang. Maybe you do some pranayama and you can stop some infection or some vi- You have a flu and instead of 10 days, you get rid of it in 3 days. No? Like, you are fighting it off. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And therefore, even in yoga and spirituality, this thing is a factor to be considered, and it is an important element in the spiritual practice. And for many people, things go wrong or weird in the spiritual practice due to this factor. And the gurus, if they are competent, if they are indeed worthy of their position, they know of these things and they try to deal with it, And I'm telling you that even we are not only Jesus had his Judas and others. Many others have had so many problems by this. Even Milarepa, who was a great Tibetan yogi, in the end he got poisoned by somebody. A local king tried to assassinate Buddha three times. Why assassinate Buddha? Like when you read about Buddha, Buddha was a wonderful person. And a man preaching compassion, why would you want to kill Buddha? Well, yes, somebody wanted to kill Buddha several times. Buddha was not always greeted with friendliness and with smiles. That's precisely because of these demonic and dark influences, which sometimes are wanting to avoid the contact with a person like Jesus. When Jesus entered that synagogue and that boy saw him, he started howling like a wolf. He was provoked. So in this way, like for many Christians in Europe, bells, the bells of the churches, ding dong, ding dong, is come to the mass. It's like the song of the angels. There is a whole mysticism, like in Andrei Rublev and others, about how to make bells which are calling on the angels. Karl Marx, on the other hand, He said, every time when I hear church bells ringing, it's like a dark fog is descending on my brain, and I want to catch something and break it, and I want to kill and destroy. It irritates me so much. Karl Marx describes perfectly the reaction of a person who is demonized. Many people, when they hear bells, they want to pray to Jesus, and Karl Marx wanted to destroy and kill. 
This tells us immediately who Karl Marx was and what kind of spirit he was. And the discussion could continue, but it's late because some of you want to attend the meditation which was on the program or isn't anymore. I don't know. There was a story there. Anyway, I promise that I will stop latest at 10.30. So tonight I'm stopping earlier just to give you this time. And I started with this first major exorcism, demon casting, which Jesus does, and which is one of the staple marks, one of the typical things for Jesus that you hear a hundred times in the Bible, that there was a demon and he cast away, and he cast demons, and he cast... Some of those demons were fevers, organic conditions. Some of those demons were energetical things, like people masturbating all day long or whatever. Some of those demons were states of depression, sadness, anger, destruction, frustration. Some of those demons were people thinking in a totally wrong way. Allah, Karl Marx, like Jesus worked hard and put himself on a cross so people can have a faith. And then Karl Marx says, religion is the opium of the masses. Like Jesus tries to build a religion and Karl Marx says that all religions should be destroyed. The question is, who is right? Which one of those two is coming from God and which one of them is the demon in the equation? And in this way, uh, there is a lot to learn. Like the thing, this thing with uh, influences is very vast and on very many levels, and with Jesus, you get a orgy of that. There is a lot of demon dealing and all that. Good. Enough for tonight, so you can have access to the Shivaratri meditation. With this, we stop, and I'll continue. Again, when these things bring up questions, remember that the questions can always be asked in the Q&As on Tuesday. Otherwise, again, next time I'll continue exactly from the middle of this episode in the life of Jesus where he performs his first public exorcism. With this, we are done for tonight.